Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and we will remember them, and then uh, we'll jump into the last lesson, the last command, series of commands. Father, we are grateful that you are our God, that you uh, know all, you are all-powerful, we acknowledge that. <clears throat> Father, we acknowledge your grace and your mercy and your peace, and we pray that those would be on the Horn family uh, today, uh, tomorrow, and the days ahead. Father, as they are preparing for this incredible life-changing circumstances. Father, we know that your will is perfect, uh, that you will walk with them through it. We pray for Amy and the boys, uh, that you will be their peace, you will give them a peace that does pass all understanding, which will be a, a testimony to your goodness and your greatness in their life. Father, we just pray that you will calm them now, tonight, and the days ahead. Father, tonight, would you open up your word to us as we look at this incredibly important command to pray. Lord, would you stir within our own hearts and our own minds and spirits uh, this desire to be praying people. Lord, just teach us to pray tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have again given you the review. Uh, since this is the last week, you have the 10 weeks there in front of you uh, of where we have gone and the commands that we have been looking at. And again, this is in no way all-inclusive of all of the commands that Christ gave. As I said, I, I bought a book from a Bible college professor of mine that listed over 900 commands in the Bible, or in the New Testament. Um, over 200 of them came from Christ. Um, and so we've kind of lumped them into ten big commands or nine big commands as we've looked at come, follow, think, love, forgive, fear not, and pray. Uh, and uh, tonight that's what we want to look at. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And uh, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, Jesus was was giving the disciples a, a new model for prayer. This was all new to them. Uh, when they asked, teach us to pray, it was because they didn't know. Uh, they, they didn't know how to pray. Prayer was not something that they did. Uh, but they saw Jesus do it. You know, very early in the morning while it was still dark, he went off to a solitary place and prayed. And, and that was his habit. That was his discipline. We talked about prayer as a discipline I don't know, somewhere in the last five and a half years. Um, and uh, when we talk about the spiritual disciplines and how Jesus made that a point and they watched him and they saw him. And of all the things that Jesus did, this is the one thing they said, teach us to do that. They sensed that there was something supernatural in prayer. That there was something that they had never experienced, nor did they feel like they could experience just by imitating what he did, just by repeating the words he said, which I'm sure they've heard him pray before. There was something spectacular about it. And they said, teach us to do that. And so Jesus is giving them a new model because the old model, the one of the Pharisees, was one of repetitious prayer, of just saying the, the same thing over and over, that babbling that Jesus said, don't, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. Don't keep on just repeating. Vain repetition uh, is another way they, they said it. And how often do our prayers become that? How, I struggle with this as a parent. And even with a 12-year-old, almost 15-year-old, and an 18-year-old, I'm still not sure exactly what to do with this. But when we teach our children to pray, do we not tend to teach them to repeat the same prayer at supper 
and the same prayer at bed. And, and they have their prayer that they say. That's how I grew up hearing that. Now, we haven't taught our kids that. We, we don't. We haven't really taught our kids to pray in the sense of telling them what to say. And, you know, we have these cute childlike prayers. And, and, and my fear is that we're, that we're teaching the principle of repetition. Just say this over and over and over. When you go to bed, say this. Rather than really teaching them to pray. That we teach them words to say. And I, I said, I'm still struggling with this in my head as to, to where the right thing falls. Because there's a fine line uh, between what it takes to, to teach them. But Jesus was giving them, these guys, a whole new model for prayer that they had never really seen before. And so we, we have to watch our own prayer. We have to be careful that we don't fall into the babbling. That we don't fall into the vain repetition. That we truly are. I mean... If I, if I just said the exact same thing to my wife every morning when we got up, I love you, have a good day. How long would it take for that to lose me? Two days. <laughs> the second time I did it. And, and so if I'm going to foster a, a loving, grace-filled relationship like Denny talked about the last couple weeks on Sunday morning with my wife, that's going to take some effort in the communication. And so if I'm going to do my part and foster a love, grace-filled, adoration, praise relationship with God, the Creator Almighty, it's going to take some thought. It's going to take some effort. It's not going to be the God is good. God, I don't even know what it is. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for this food. Amen. I've heard that prayer. I've heard families sit down and that's the prayer that's said. And I'm like, really? That's what you came up with. And not to, to belittle that, but it's got to be more than that. It has to be more than that. And Jesus is saying here, guys, it's more than that. It is, a, it is a, an intimate relationship. It's not, it's not the words that are said so much as the attitude and the heart behind it. And so then he says in Matthew 6, verses 9, after he says, don't babble like the pagans. It's not your father knows what you need before you ask him. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, this, this was Jesus' response when the disciples said, teach us to pray. And what Jesus gave was a model. And I, I think sometimes we've taken the model and we've made it vain repetition and babbling. Because I've heard sports teams, everyone drop a knee. Our Father who art, and they just repeat it. Guys who aren't believers, who haven't stepped a foot in the church forever in their entire life, 16, 17, 18, but they've grown up in sports where they pray before a, a sporting event, and they've learned the word because we've just repeated it over. I don't know that Jesus really gave this with the idea of repeat this. Repeat after me. I don't know that that was his intention. His intention was to give them a model that they, could, that they could learn from with principles behind it. When you pray, keep these things in mind. Never really meaning for it to be repeated ceremoniously at events. So what I want to do tonight for the first part as we talk about this pray this way command is I want to break this down by the phrases that we might understand the principles that Jesus was teaching, the model, so that we can model our own prayer life after this. Not that we repeat it. Okay? And the first, he says, our Father in heaven. And so the first principle is intimacy with God. 
father was probably, the idea of calling God father was probably a new concept to the disciples. Because I, I venture to say they never talked to God this way. It's not there. <clears throat> and so th this idea of them calling him father would have blown them away. I mean, they would have had to stop right there and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You call God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, you call him father? Because in the Old Testament, God had to be approached through the tabernacle. God had to be approached through the temple. God, God was powerful, and then only the priest actually ever went in, and only the one who was on duty did he ever go into the very presence of God? God was not someone to be approached as father. He was almighty. And when the word father refers to God in the Old Testament, it is always a national relationship, not a personal one. He is the father of Israel. He is the father of the nations, not the father of the individuals. They would not have seen him as their individual father. But here Jesus is saying, when you pray, when you individually pray, our Father who is in heaven. When that word, uh, that, that whole idea of Father, Jesus is really bringing a new understanding to who God is. He used Father in reference to God 17 times in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we believe because it's the one we have recorded as the first public sermon that he gave, he refers to God as Father 17 times. People didn't do that. Priests didn't do that. The rabbis didn't do that. I think that was a big indication of where his ministry was going to be going, and that probably started some of the problems with the Pharisees when he would refer to God the Creator, Almighty God, Elohim, as Father. And he's saying, you have that relationship. You have that intimacy with God as a believer. Seventy times Jesus refers to him through, as father throughout the Gospels. Seventeen, just in that Sermon on the Mount. Galatians chapter 4. But when, and this is why we can call him father. This is why we, we have this, this ability to have this intimate relationship. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now understand that, that we have been made sons, children of God, not servants. In the Old Testament, it was servants. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel were the servants of God, not the sons. In the New Testament, because of what Jesus accomplished through the cross, through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, we have the ability to call him. We have the right as believers because we have the adoption to sonship. We can call him Abba, which is a very intimate uh, use of the word father. Uh, and that, too, would have thrown them for a loop. Uh, and so when we pray, we, we need to be very intimate and very personal. That our prayers are to be a, a conversation, a very natural conversation with God. Because it stems out of a relationship. Respectful? Yes, because he is God. We talked about fear God last week. And so we have to have that, that holy fear, that reverence for him. But, but in, the, in the midst of that reverence is an intimacy, is a naturalness of the relationship. We don't need to be formal with God. Abba, Father, was not a formal talking to him, not a formal representation of him. It was a very informal, very intimate. And there is no formula to the prayer, to our prayer. In, in, uh, in our grad class through Geneva, in Geneva it's a, it's a 
biblically based. I mean, uh, for me, the college is. And so the grad class, we always open with prayer. We always take volunteers. Well, there are three pastors in the grad class, me and two others. And whenever it says, who wants to pray, everyone turns and looks at us. And I, on purpose, I intentionally never volunteer to pray. And I actually got in trouble for it a couple weeks ago. Why don't the pastors pray? I said, because anyone can do it. I can't pray. I'm no good at it. I said, you know, if your heart's right, there's no such thing as a bad prayer. I said, if your heart, if, if you are praying from the heart, there is no such thing as a bad prayer. I said, anyone can pray. And so I sign up for my one turn, because we're all supposed to take turns. I sign up for my one turn uh, through the rotation, and I pray when it's my time to pray. But if someone hasn't signed up for a week, they immediately turn and look at one of us. And I'm just, I'm bound and determined not to do it. I'm not letting people off the hook. Pray to God. He's an intimate, loving father who loves to talk to his children. That's the, that's the, that's the attitude we're to have. That's, that is Jesus's, our father who art in heaven. He is in heaven. Number two, intimacy with God, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That in our prayer, we need to understand the character of God, that he is holy. That's what hallowed means. Holy, separate. His holiness would have been a reason to fear him, but with a right fear and relationship, his holiness is a good thing. Remember, we talked about that last week with fear God. That, that we can, if we're outside of a relationship with God, then his holiness is something to be terrified of feared if we are in a relationship with god then his holiness is something to be in awe of reverence holy fear respected beyond measure and so when we pray we need to come in an intimate way but with a with a respect of who it is we're talking to every time we think of god who he is and what he has done should make us respond in worship. Because this really is a, is a phrase of worship. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. We've sang it. Holy, holy, holy. You know, it's in a lot of our, our hymns and choruses on, on the holiness of God. And, and it's actually a, a worship phrase. And so our prayer needs to take on kind of a worship attitude. Because of the character of who God is. That we can worship him through prayer. That, that praise is, praise his character when we pray him. That, that we, ought to, we ought to have time, and I know there are times when, you know, we're praying in desperation, and I'm not necessarily talking about those times. Those are kind of special crisis needs. But in our regular, normal, everyday, moment-by-moment prayer life, there should be an attitude and an aspect of worship God on who God is. Hallowed be your name. I venture to say that we do not worship him nearly as often or as much as we should. And I think I'm safe in saying that because I don't know that we can. <laughs> Humanly speaking, we could worship him 24-7 and still not reach the, the height, depth, width, breadth of God's love, of, of his uh, reason to be worshipped, of his majesty. But going back to last week, we have lost the holy fear of God. Remember, that, that was something that, uh, that Tozer said, that we've lost the majesty of God. That somehow we've, we've done away with it. We've reduced God to almost human, to human characteristics. And so we need to bring that, that aspect of his character back into our worship and back into our prayer life. Denny even alluded to that in, in the sermon this morning, how we, we've kind of lost that holy fear. We need to have that holy fear, that, that worship, that praise. That's what fuels our praise of God, is that respect and that reverence uh, of Him. So we need to have an intimacy. We need to have a, a right understanding of the character of God. Third thing Jesus says is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is submission to God. If we have a, a, an intimate relationship 
based on love, grace, mercy, peace. And we have a correct understanding of who he is, holy, just, righteous, perfect in all of his ways, all powerful, all knowing, all present. Then we won't have too difficult a time if we have those in right understanding. We won't have a too difficult a time submitting to a God like that. So that's what the your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's acknowledging God as a king with a kingdom. And and his kingdom is not in this world. Because we want his kingdom, his reign to happen on earth like it is in heaven. That's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want things to operate here the way they operate there. And that takes us submitting to him. Because where is, where, where does the kingdom of heaven dwell? Where does God dwell here? In here. In believers. In our hearts, in our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So if his kingdom is going to come from there to here, and his will is going to be done here, it's going to be done through you and me. His kingdom is going to reign through our life. It's not going to be something outside of us. It's going to be something within us. Through his kingdom. He doesn't do things the way the world does them. And so we have to align our will to his will. Our prayers need to reflect his principles. Our prayers need to reflect His will. Our prayers need to reflect His reign. His sovereignty. Sarah and I learned a number of years ago that we we really guard how we pray. When someone tells us, pray that this happens, maybe. Maybe I will. Because that may not, until I find out that's what God wants to have happen, I'm not going to pray for it to happen. I want His will, His reign, His sovereignty, His kingdom to rule on earth as it is in heaven. And to pray that way for that thing to happen may not be it. We learned that with friends of ours who could not get, could not have children. She she was unable to, to become pregnant. Doctors didn't know why. They said, pray, pray that they get children, pray that she just wants to be a mom, pray. And we did. We prayed and 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 they got a divorce. Without children, they got a divorce. God never answered that prayer yet. Within a year, both of them were in new relationships and had to get married. Because the guy's girlfriend was pregnant and this lady became pregnant. You see, bringing children into that relationship would have been the worst thing possible. And we learned, you know what? That wasn't God's will. God's will was to get their marriage right, which they were not interested in. They thought having kids would get their marriage right. It would have just fouled things up. And so we have become very careful in praying for certain things that may not be. And tacking on the your will be done, not my will, but your will. We usually say that in vain repetition. And and we can't. We have to know God's will. We have to seek his will in this situation. And so before we start saying, this is what God, this is what you need to do. This is what I think you need to do. This is what I want you to do. Lord, show me what you want to do. That's submission. That's submission. That's reporting for duty and saying, you know, this would be great if it worked out this way, but show me. Show me what I'm to do. Show me how I'm to pray in this situation. So we need to submit. And it is submit, it is submission as his kingdom resides within us. Asking for our lives to reflect his kingdom. When the church comes together and acts like the church, the world is going to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But when the church comes together and acts like fallen people, acts like the world, 
then the church, then the world's going to see nothing different. Nothing that they really even want to be a part of or would need to be a part of. And, and so this submission, when we submit our wills, when we acknowledge his reign and his sovereignty, and we, and, and we are willing to submit to that and we come together, the world's going to see something different, should see something different. And so the, the question from this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is do the, do the kingdom principles dictate how you live? Is it your will be done? Are we willing to submit? And how far are we willing to submit? Oswald Chambers, one of my favorites, says, It is not so true that prayer changes things as that prayer changes me, and then I change things. Consequently, we must not ask God to do what he has created us to do. For instance, God is not a social reformer. He came to alter us first. And if there is any social reform to be done on earth, we must do it. See, sometimes we want to stand back and say, God, change that. And God's saying, I changed you. Get involved in that. And it will change. On earth, as it is in heaven, that resides within us. Submission to God. So we need intimacy with God. We need character uh, we need to understand the character of God. We need to submit to God. And the fourth thing is we need dependence on God. Give us today everything we need for the rest of our life so that we can just not worry about a thing. Boy, I wish that's what he had said. No, give us today our daily bread. He used that word twice in there, today and daily. Give us today our daily bread. God is interested, in, and here's the concept, the principle that we need to understand. God is interested in our daily lives. He's interested in providing for us exactly what we need at this moment, for this moment, in this moment. And he supplies our needs. But he's not going to give us enough to last but what we need for right now. That's trust. That's faith. And so we need to acknowledge our dependence. And this is the this is the principle dependence on God. Give us today our daily bread. We need to depend on him daily. Matthew chapter four, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As I was as I was reading through this this week, that phrase took on a whole new meaning. Or that, that sentence, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That bread ha only has, stay with me on this one. Bread only has the ability to, stay, to sustain life because God spoke into it those qualities. If God had not spoken into the flour the wheat, and all the things that go into making bread, if he had not spoken into those qualities into, then it would not be able to sustain life. So we don't live off of bread. We live off of the fact that God spoke into those plants that sustain our life. If God removes his word from the wheat, it will not sustain us. If God removes his word from vegetables, they will not sustain us. The only reason vegetables are good to eat is because God spoke into them. That God spoke and created them to fulfill that need for us. Little ethereal, little philosophical, little out there. But were, were God to withdraw, but it really made me think, if God were to withdraw his word, bread and meat would be useless. If God had not spoken into them, that vegetables would be as nutritious as dirt. And some do taste like dirt. So this, this is a call to develop a daily discipline of thanksgiving to God, that he does supply our needs, that he does provide for us. That he, has, that he has seen fit that humans need nutrients and he has seen fit to speak and create by his word vegetables, fruits, animals. He spoke on the 
fourth and fifth day, and those things came into existence for that purpose. And so we don't live by bread alone, but we live by the fact that God spoke into and created those things to enable us to live. So we are dependent upon him. Right. First time that our needs are even addressed at this point. Everything else has been pointed towards God in praise and, and, and adoration. Next one. Forgive us our debts or sins or trespasses or whatever translation you use. As we also have forgiven our debtors, or those who have sinned against us or trespassed against us. We have forgiveness from God. And so we're, we're way down the list before we even get to forgive us. Literally, this word, whether it's debts, sins, or trespasses, whatever the translation uses, means send away what we owe. I love that. Forgive us our debts. Send away what we owe. Get rid of. Send. Send away. Get rid of what we owe. And that's what we're asking God. We're asking for forgiveness. We're asking him to take. And what does God do with our sin? Moves it as far as the east is west. That's forgiveness. It's not there anymore. He remembers it no more. It is gone. And, and he sends it away. We no longer owe it. And he says we are to do the same for others. So if someone sins against us, if someone is a debtor or a sinner or a trespasser against us, we're to remove that sin. We're to send it away. We're not to see it anymore. And when we see them, we don't see the sin. We've forgiven that. And what does Jesus, what does Jesus say at the end? If we are unwilling to forgive others, he will not forgive us. We kind of glaze over that part. Read it real fast. Let's not spend a lot of time there. But it's what Jesus said. If you are unwilling, and then Jesus told parables of that, of the, the manager who, you know, the, or the servant who was forgiven you know, a bazillion dollars that he had no way of ever paying back, and then he went and beat a guy to the pulp for you know, a buck and a half. Jesus says, no, you're out. Because you wouldn't take, forgive. You would not forgive. Um, and so we, we need to ask forgiveness. We need to be willing to forgive. And we talked about the command to forgive in Lesson 7. Uh, and Jesus reiterates the command by, by telling us why, that if we don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive us. Um, it would be foolish to think or expect that he would. It would be foolish to think that God would forgive me if I'm unwilling to forgive anyone else in my life. That's really a spoiled brat is what that is. You do for me and I don't care about anyone. I'm not doing I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. I don't have to be nice to you. But you be nice to me. That's what we're saying if we're not willing to forgive. So we need forgiveness from God and a willingness to show it. So that's the principle, forgiveness. The next principle is guidance of the Holy Spirit. And lead us not into temptation. It's odd that God would lead us into temptation because God doesn't tempt anyone. Okay, Scripture says God does not tempt anyone. Don't, don't misunderstand that. God doesn't tempt anyone. We are tempted when by our own evil desires we're dragged away and enticed. I think is what James says. Uh, the Greek word here is trial. Lead us not into trial but deliver us from the evil one. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. And this, this word for trial, the Greek word is actually used, translated several different ways. Trial and temptation is one, and we sometimes get them confused as to how we should translate them. But context will allow us to understand that. Because in James, anytime it says temptation or trial, it's the exact same word. Okay? So in James, when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life, 
that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, that's the exact same word, okay? When tempted, when trialed, no one should say, God is trialing me, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's the same Greek word in all the cases of trial and temptation. And so it's the context that explains to us whether it's a trial from God or a temptation from our own evil desire, from from the enemy. Okay, so God does not tempt us. Uh, God does not entice us with evil. He may allow us to go through temptation. He may allow us to go through that trial. He'll bring a test that may strengthen us. And so the prayer is one of acknowledging really our own weakness. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not. Don't bring us that trial. There's nothing wrong with asking for no trial. Understand one may come. But God knows what you are able to handle, and he'll never allow you to be tempted. He'll never allow you to be trialed beyond what you are capable of handling with the Holy Spirit within you. And so this prayer is one of guidance that we're asking of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is leading us, and that when this trial comes or when this temptation comes, you know, you can go one of two ways. You can resist or you can give in. And with the trial, that's what temptation enticed to evil. With a, with a trial, with a, with a crisis, you can either follow after God, strengthen your faith through perseverance, or you can crash and burn and reduce your faith or weaken your faith. And what we're saying is, is don't lead us into those, those situations. We don't really want them. And Jesus says, that's all right to say that. But when, we're, when they come, thank him because it produces perseverance. You don't have to want it. I mean, it would be kind of silly to say, bring it on. <laughs> you know, they always say, don't pray for patience because you'll get it in about four years. So we have to be careful what we pray for, but there's nothing wrong with saying, don't, don't bring me into those trials. I really don't want the crisis. I'm weak. And that's what we're acknowledging here before God. It's not, it's not a a confident or, or a boastful, bring it on. It's an understanding of you are powerful. It's an understanding of the character of God and my place in the food chain. That he is God and I am not. And, and it is a humbling, lead us not into temptation because I'm not boasting that I can overcome I believe that, that you can bring me through. I believe that you can. And then we get the very next one. And this is the, the, the principle of deliverance. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us if we get there. Deliver us from the evil one. Because we are weak, when we face trials, God, we need you to deliver us. This is making prayer, this this. These last two, because they really go together, guidance and deliverance, really go together, is really uh, is, is really saying, you know what, you've got to, I am weak, and it's a humbling, and you're going to have to carry me, you're going to have to lead me. This is submission, once again, for guidance and, and deliverance. Because we are weak, that when we face trials, deliver us. And what we're really doing, I had a thought that came and left, and I was waiting for it to come back, is that we need to make, we need to make prayer our first order of business when we do face trials. All the time, yes, but especially when we face trials. Why? Because we're acknowledging I'm too weak. I can't do this. I can't go through this. Lord, deliver me from this. I submit to however you're going to do it. But what we tend to do sometimes is we get into a panic and we try to solve it all and then pray, God, fix it. And Jesus is saying that's backwards. Deliver, 
Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into trial. Deliver us from it. When we're in it, deliver us. It's not up to me to get myself out. It's up to me to pray, submit, acknowledge my weakness, God's character, His greatness, and allow the Holy Spirit to lead me through those rough waters. And out trusting Him out the other side. That's not easy. There's a human side to us that human nature still says, you're in control. No, we already prayed that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So see, we've already prayed, I'm not in control. So by the time I get to crisis, oh, I'm not in control. Well, then deliver me from this evil. Deliver me from this situation, whatever that may be. If you want further reading on this, David Jeremiah has a great book called Prayer of the Great Adventures. And he basically just walks through the Lord's Prayer. That's what he's doing. Walking through the Lord's Prayer piece by piece. I've kind of given you a very quick synopsis of what each of those chapters, and he unpacks it even more that we could never have done uh, in one night. So, when you pray, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. There's another command that goes with this. Jesus at another time says, watch and pray. When you pray and watch and pray. Mark chapter 14. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is our lesson here? What, what is the, the lesson behind watch and pray? Be on guard, and I like the word you use, be on the defensive. You know, prayer is our defense. Prayer is, is a defensive measure that, that we, we defend with prayer. We attack with the sword. Sword is an offensive weapon. We, we have defense with prayer. And so we can defend with prayer. And so we have to watch. We have to be on our guard. The disciples at this point, and this was Jesus in the garden. Remember, he, 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 they'd done the Last Supper. Uh, he took, his twel- uh, took the 11 because Judas was already gone. That was a little supper, dinner, table fiasco, what happened there. When one of their own was kind of asked to leave or dismissed from their band of 12. And, and now they're, they're going off to the garden, which didn't seem strange to any of them. Apparently this was what they did. They had a regular time, uh, and Jesus wanted to go here. Um, and so this is a long day. It was the Passover, the meal. They had been preparing all day. They had come together. It was late at night, no doubt, well beyond dark, well beyond the dinner hour. They were exhausted, physically tired, mentally tired, spiritually tired. It was an incredibly long day. With all of the things that had been taking place, Jesus said, this is when you need to pray the most. It wasn't that they didn't know they were supposed to be praying. It was that they did not watch and pray. They gave in to sleep. They gave in to exhaustion. At the time they needed to pray most, at the time Jesus needed them to pray most, they curled up and went to sleep. Jesus knew what was coming, and he tried to warn them without telling them specifically what was going to happen because that probably would have freaked them out. But, But he's... He's, he's saying, guys, this, this is, he didn't say, he did tell them what was going to happen. He didn't tell them when it was going to happen. Uh, and so they know what's coming kind of vaguely down the, but I think they in their own mind translated it a different way and they didn't totally understand what was going. But, but Jesus had said, you need to pray right now. Temptation is coming and you are the weakest. He said, you know, he knew that Peter would deny him. He even told Peter, you're going to do it. He knew that the others were going to abandon him. 
Judas already had. They were not prepared for the battle that laid in front of them. And even with all the warnings that Jesus had given them in the upper room, and remember it's really John chapter 13 through 16 is the teaching in the upper room. That all took place. We kind of think it was supper, wash the feet, and hit the road. No, they were up there probably for two, three, four hours. And Jesus just explaining, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. I've got to leave. Things are going to happen. You're not going to understand. You're going to be confused. And he gives them all this warning in John chapter 13 through 16 about the Holy Spirit and what's going to be happening. And they gave in to their sleep. And we tend to fall into the trap of complacency and just assume that tomorrow everything is going to be just like it was today. No expectation. And so there's no preparation. Because when I wake up tomorrow morning, it's going to be just like every other Monday morning. Probably not. Maybe not. Jesus said, watch and pray, because you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what the ride home brings. That pray without ceasing, that moment by moment, is a watch and pray. Be on your guard. Peter looked back on that night of being called Simon, his old name, and not Peter, his new name. That had to hurt. Because he was known as Peter. Jesus changed his name to to Petra or Peter or Rock and said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're going to do some incredibly great, awesome things. And here he calls him Simon. The name he was called before he ever knew Jesus. That had to sting a little. But Peter looked back on that night and and he never forgot because look what he writes in 1 Peter in in his letter. In his book, he says, be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How did he know that? Because it happened to him. He fell asleep when he needed to be praying. When Jesus said, you need to be on your guard, you need to watch with me just for an hour. Peter said, no, I was not alert. My mind was not sharp. And the enemy got a hold of me. And I denied the Lord three times. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like roaring around. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Paul understood it. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be on guard. Don't let your guard down. Prayer is your guard. Always pray without ceasing. Moment by moment in that attitude of prayer. Watch for it. Because the the, the enemy is moving around. And if we're just going through la-di-da day, because it's going to happen today like it did yesterday, we're going to get tripped up. Because we're not going to see it coming. Watch and pray. Third command here is pray for helpers. Pray for helpers. Matthew chapter 9, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We use this verse so many times at missions conferences, and I hate it. I hate that we use it at missions conferences because that's not what it's intended for. We should be using it every Sunday morning for when we Go out into the harvest field. Somehow we've translated this for missions. And so what we've done with that translation is we said, then he said to his disciples, the world is plentiful, but the missionaries are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out missionaries into his harvest field. Is that not how we translate that in our minds so many times? That's not what this is saying at all. Missionary never gets used in this context. This verse, this verse reflects the very character of God, which gives the command, pray for helpers, even more meaning. 
Because God wants all to be saved. Every person. So every person you come in contact with, every person you read about in the newspaper, every person you see on TV, God says, that's your harvest field. You need to be working. You need to pray for others to join you in the harvest. See, we remove ourselves from the harvest. And we say, send workers over there. And God's saying, you get yourself over there and pray for others to come and help you. That's what this verse means. Right. Yeah, you don't have to go very far to see the harvest. Wake up in the morning sometimes. That's your harvest. Go to work. That's the field. Go into your neighborhood. That's the field. School. That's the field. And God says, you get in there, and then you pray for God to send others to come in with you. Changes everything, doesn't it? Changes that command to pray for workers, to pray for helpers. We are to pray for workers. With this prayer, we're we're surrendering ourselves to becoming one of those workers. It's a command not only to pray, but it's a command to look at the harvest. Look at the people you come in contact with. Look closely at the person, not in a creepy way. (laughs) If you stare at them, they're going to think you're weird. Remember, don't be an idiot. That was last week's lesson. But look at them. With the eyes of God, look at them. Look at their life. And then how can I bring the gospel? How can I bring the message? How can I bring the good news into the... Pray for workers. Pray for opportunities. For God to show you how to bring that person into contact with him. Because that's what God wants. More than anything, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Again, that's a missions verse, but I hate using that at missions conference. You're sent. You are the sent ones. Preach. And that preach is basically just share, talk, tell the good news, get it out there. All right. So so we are to pray for workers, but it's not for them to go do it. It's for them to come join us, to help us in doing it. If we pray this prayer. Every morning. And we believe that God's character is the one that desires to answer it. We will live looking for the opportunity to help the harassed and the helpless. That, that word ask is, is interesting. It, it's to, to put under obligation. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Put the Lord of the harvest under obligation to send workers. You know what? He's not going to send someone alongside you unless you're in it. Because why would he send anyone to go stand alongside someone who's standing on the sidelines? That's not helping. That's not doing anything. Get in the game and then put the Lord under obligation to send people to help you because the harvest is so full you can't take care of it yourself and you need help. Because you're in it and you've got so many friends, you've got so many co-workers, you've got so many people in your life that you're witnessing to that, have, that are seeing it lived out in your life, that that you ask for help and and you're putting God under obligation to send you help 
because he doesn't want any of those to perish. Kind of changes that verse a little bit, doesn't it, when we look at it that way. But that's what it means. That's what we're saying. This is one prayer God will always answer yes. Always. When you are in the midst of the harvest field and you are witnessing and you're living your life and people are asking you for the reason to, to give a reason for the hope that you have, as Peter tells us, always be ready. And you're, and you're witnessing to people and you've got people coming to know the Lord and people that are asking and, it, and you're just getting overwhelmed with the amount of people that, are, that you are reaching out to. That anytime you say, Lord, send me some help, he'll say yes every time because it's within his character to do that but you've got to get yourself off the side and into the game get yourself out of the barn and into the field any other analogy you want to put to it we need to be doing it so when you pray pray this way watch and pray and pray for helpers. Get in the game. Be at it. And pray that it's so overwhelming that God's got to send you somebody to help. And all of that. So there's our commands. Ten weeks on the commands of God. Now just for fun, I went back and looked. We've been doing this on Sunday night. How long? Anybody know how long we've kind of turned it into this teaching time instead of a preaching time? what I used to call a half-baked Sunday morning. Five and a half years. This is our five and a half year mark, which means we have done. I went back and looked. We have covered the Bible. Can we trust it? What is it? How did we get it? We've answered all those questions. We looked at God's attributes. Who is he? We understand the character of God through those attributes. So we've, we've looked at all of those things. We talked about the life of Christ. Who is Jesus? What, what was his purpose? What was his plan? How did he accomplish that? Can we trust him? Is he who he says he is? We did the Holy Spirit twice because it's just that important. We looked at the church. What is it? Who is it? What are we to be doing? What's its purpose? What's its mission? How is it going to carry out that mission? We've looked at angels. That's the one we started with. The very first time we looked at a Sunday night teaching was we looked at the angels and the supernatural. Um, we looked at spiritual disciplines. What are we to be doing? We looked at worldviews. You remember that one? We looked at all of the, the various worldviews that are out there. We studied sin, defined it. What is it? How do we overcome it? Uh, how do we see it coming? We talked about temptation there. We walked through the book of Romans. Okay, we treaded through the book. That was not a light walk by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then tonight we've looked at the commands of Christ. I think spiritual warfare was in there too. I think that was a follow-up on angels well we have covered a lot of ground in five and a half years and uh i've got some ideas on where we're going in the fall uh always always willing to hear your ideas of where you would like to go or, or maybe there you know if two or three of you say i've got this question i've got what about this we'll probably walk in that direction right now i'm leaning through walking through the minor prophets we'll take a different minor prophet each week and we will ask the question, if that minor prophet were alive today, what would his message to the church be? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get confirmation. The five B's of pastoral prayers. What are the five B's? Be brief, brethren, be brief. Keep it simple, stupid. That's a more spiritual way to say that. So, uh, again, I love this study. Uh, I have heard some great feedback from some of you uh, on how much you have enjoyed this study. And uh, it has been good. I've never gone through the commands uh, before. And uh, so it's been good for me. And I trust it's been good for you. So uh, enjoy the summer. Take some of these books I've suggested along the way. Uh, most of them are in the library. If they are not, if you tell the librarian, Pastor Ted said I should read this book, they will get it for you in the library. Um, and we will make sure that those books are there. Um, so, 
with that, let's, uh, let's close in prayer and be on our way. Father, we are again grateful that you are a God of truth and that you have given us your word as truth and that it sanctifies us by Jesus' own command and prayer that, that you set us apart by your word. So, Father, make us students of your word. Make us doers, liver-outers of your word. Father, that it would not just be things we read or study, but it would be life-changing principles. Father, tonight, teach us to pray. Show us to be on our guard. Help us to get into the, the field and, and need workers to call in reinforcement and help. Father, may the principles of your life, your godly character, be reflected in our own life. That our individual lives and our corporate lives as, as your body would bring you glory as we live it out moment by moment, day by day. Father, may we never become, become complacent. May we never become lax. May we always be alert, watch. In Jesus' name, amen. We, <laughs> prayer really wasn't that different. <laughs> yeah, my fan page.